there. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Withdrawal, a weekly discussion on antidepressants and the issues surrounding them. Hello, this is James. Welcome to episode 21 of Let's Talk Withdrawal, a weekly podcast discussing antidepressants and mental health. This week, I'm honoured to have had the chance to interview Dr. Gary Sidley. Dr. Sidley worked within NHS Mental Health Services for 33 years in a variety of nursing, psychological and managerial roles. In the 1980s, he was employed as a psychiatric nurse at a large asylum in Manchester, commencing his clinical psychology training in 1987. Subsequently, he worked as a clinical psychologist in community mental health services, inpatient units and GP practices, as well as in senior management positions. Gary is now a freelance writer and trainer with an interest in promoting alternatives to biomedical psychiatry as ways of responding to human suffering. In 2015, Gary published the book Tales from the Madhouse, in which he clearly lays out the scientific evidence against current psychiatric practices, going on to illustrate key points with beautifully written, poignant, at times deeply shocking stories from his years of experience. His stories leave us in no doubt that medically-led practices impact negatively on those in the care of mental health services. Tales from the Madhouse challenges us to question blind faith in psychiatric services in the UK. I was keen to ask Gary about his own experiences of working within the psychiatric system and what the future holds for mental health care. Dr. Sidley, thank you so much for talking with me today. Firstly, for the listeners, could you give us a little bit about your own background and how you came to be working in the psychiatric system? Yes, it's, uh, it goes back quite a long way, James. Um, I first started my career in mental health back in 1980, many years ago, when I uh, got a job as a unqualified uh, nursing assistant on an acute admission ward. I'd just left university the year before with a, with a biochemistry and physiology degree, so I was quite into the science at that time. But during that degree, I decided I wanted to study psychology and become a psychologist. So um, after completing that degree, I thought I'd better get myself some relevant experience. And um, I managed to successfully apply for this nursing assistant job on an acute admission ward um, and then the year after went to do my psychiatric uh, nurse training at Presswich Hospital, a, a large uh, psychiatric hospital in Manchester and I worked as a psychiatric nurse through the early 1980s up to 1987 and that's when I left to do my clinical psychology uh, training and then worked as a clinical psychologist from 1989 right through to my early retirement from the NHS back in 2013. And during that time as a clinical psychologist, I, I worked in a variety of roles, mainly in community mental health teams, some inpatient work, uh, some in primary care psychology work as well, and also worked as a team leader and um, on a senior management team in my in my later years. Thank you. Well, you've clearly worked everywhere, right from the coalface as a psychiatric nurse to senior management within the mental health care system, haven't you? Yeah, I think I think I probably have. And um, I talked with someone else a few, well, a couple of years ago now about um, like a personal journey through the system, really. And um, in my case, I think my, my journey can be divided into three chunks. I think in the, the first chunk, which is going back to my 1980s when I was nursing, I kind of saw myself as colluding with 
when I look back on it anyway, including with the traditional psychiatric system. You know, I worked in a, in a psychiatric hospital. I was involved in um, administering drugs, even involved in uh, the ECT process, mm. electroconvulsive therapy process at that time. And then I went, went into a second phase, which was probably around the 1990s onwards, where I had this belief I could, I could have some impact from working within the system. I'm trying to work with good, you know, with pockets of good practice and seeking that evolution rather than revolution that people often talk about. But then by the time I got to the year 2000 and gone, I was becoming increasingly frustrated. Mm. And I, I did, from that point onwards, recognize the need for, for a paradigm shift in the way we respond to, to human suffering. Yeah. Um, so in a way, my my involvement with mental health does seem to divide up into those three chunks when I look back on it anyway. Thank you, Gary. And given that range and breadth of experience, I just wondered if there was one anecdote that stands out for you that sums up your feelings about the modern mental health care system. Yeah, quite a few, James, really. Quite a few anecdotes, um, many of them in the book. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I could highlight two quickly. One is specifically about antidepressants. And that was, um, I remember... This must have been probably 2003, 2004, maybe a little bit later, working in a community mental health team with a with a lady who had been struggling with a very, very low mood, feelings of hopelessness. And I, to cut a long story short, I've been working with her with psychological therapy uh, in the community mental health team at a community mental health centre. Mm. And I'd, I always remember seeing her, I think, I think it was probably about session four or five, when it felt like we'd had a really good session. Um, you know, we, we, we seemed to make some breakthroughs in making sense of how she came to feel so low and so hopeless about things. Um, we started to, what felt like a genuine collaboration with her towards looking at what she might uh, do. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, not just in the therapy session, but outside of it to start to perhaps uh, gradually move things forward. And we kind of came up with a, a plan between us that involved her uh, becoming a little bit more active in the subsequent week between that session and the next one. And she was going to approach her previous, well, her current employer because she was off on sick leave at that time. She was going to negotiate some graduated return to work, starting at some point in the future, not, not at this moment, at some point in the future. And she came up with some what seemed like really constructive uh, tasks and, and some, some additional things she was going to try and do in the week. And she actually left the session with a spring in her stride, which yeah. was really, really encouraging. Sadly, the, the week after when I when I met up, she seemed like she'd slipped back quite a quite a lot, and this was this was a little bit puzzling. When I explored it, what seemed to have happened is that she left my office or my room that I use at the community community mental health centre after what seemed to be and what she acknowledged to be a kind of really upbeat, positive session. An hour later, she had an appointment with our consultant psychiatrist, which was two doors down the corridor <laughs> from where I was seeing her. And uh, during during that consultation with my psychiatry colleague, um, she was told that um, she must take things really easy now. She's got a depressive illness. She must um, reduce her activities, take the antidepressants and wait for them to, and their word was to kick in. And that really struck me. One, one thing that really struck me is about how 
incredibly confusing that must be for our service users to get such conflicting <laughs> messages in the space of one afternoon. Um, but just the, 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 the clash of the clash of paradigms, really, and how things often do kind of work against each other. Very much so. And it's such a disempowering message to give someone, isn't it? That actually you have a chronic lifelong illness and your best bet is to be passive and let something external to you, like a medication, do something for you. That's right, James, yes. And um, the poor lady mustn't have known whether she was coming or going, really, and what to do for the best. Mm. And so that's something that 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 was a kind of little anecdote that, that did stay with me another one if i can just share this one with you this this one in a way is even more powerful for, for me and um, illustrates i think a lot that's wrong with the traditional uh, western approach to to mental health problems and this this was a gentleman who in his 40s who, who, who had suffered an episode of acute anxiety and had acquired the label as paranoid schizophrenia that had been given to him back in you know, 20 years prior to when i met him when he when he did apparently become very suspicious of others but it was in the aftermath of him being violently assaulted and robbed in his own uh, flat so it was it's kind of a we might regard as a not an unusual uh, kind of reaction to yeah. such a, a traumatic life experience but anyway 20 years later he, he came into contact with our community mental health team and with something that was more around feeling quite anxious in social situations and having a very restricted life and he was a very bright man and, and lots of qualities, but seemed to be living and was living, what's by his own admission, a very restricted uh, lifestyle with very few friends and withdrawn from pretty much any kind of uh, engagement with the community a- a- around him. And again, I was working with him with a psychological approach for some time and we didn't seem to be to be getting very far, which always seemed a little bit puzzling because um, he clearly seemed to understand the stuff we were doing in the session and seemed to understand the, the model and buy into it and seemed really enthusiastic about it. But we never, you know, in between sessions, nothing ever seemed to shift. And then, again, to cut a, a long story short, one one day he he kind of shared with me the, what was clearly the reason for this. And, and, and this was that he was actually scared of emotion. He was very frightened about the prospect of him becoming emotional. So as a, as a result, he avoided things that could actually trigger emotion, mm. even positive ones. So he would you know, he didn't want to go into enter into any relationships with, with with women again because he thought that might affect him emotionally. Mm. Um, he tried not to get excited about anything, even to the point of not watching sport on on TV because of his concern about about getting kind of uh, aroused and, and, and more emotional. And the origins of this, after some quite lengthy discussion, which he explained to me that back when he got his paranoid schizophrenia label, he'd been told by the psychiatrist then that he, that he did have a genetic brain defect that could be activated by, by stress. And he'd taken that as being paramount of... Um, I don't know, some internal explosive incendiary device in his head that could be triggered should he get emotionally aroused at any time. That's an understandable reaction, isn't it? To remove all of the joy and happiness out of life just to try and protect yourself from something that you've been warned about. That clearly would lead to a very limited experience of life. That's so sad, isn't it? It is, and, and, and that impacted on me greatly when I heard that because that just seemed um, just so sad, you know, that he'd restricted his life for so many years 
um, largely based on that premise that that any kind of uh, emotional arousal would sort of detonate mm. him into uh, into some florid psychotic episode. And that was quite a turning point when we started to discuss that and started to look at um, other ways of making sense of his experiences other than labelling it as a biological, genetically based illness that he was suffering. And Gary, did he make progress after that? Did he get past that limiting belief? He did after that, yes, he did. It was a, he had a, it was a, he was a gentleman with a lot of, a lot of skills and a, a lot of uh, ability and, and, and intelligence and a very able man in many ways. And yes, after, after that, he did, did start to reintegrate and did start to have friendships. He, he was cautious. He was dipping his toe in the water, uh, as, you, as you can expect and imagine. But, um, but it, it was a turning point. And it just always stayed with me, James. Just, you know, just what a burden to carry around this idea that you've got some kind of you know, genetic vulnerability that's, that's like a ticking time bomb in your, in your, in your head waiting to be, to be activated by, by the challenges of life or even by, in this case, um, positive emotion. I can see why someone would go to great lengths to suppress that, but it's almost removing any chance for them to have a meaningful life, isn't it? Quite, yeah. So, 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 so that, was, that was an anecdote that's, that's, that's stayed with me, and I still think about that a lot to this day. Thank you so much, Gary. Those stories really illustrate that tension that you were feeling between the biological medication-centred approach when compared to a more person-focused, compassionate way of understanding distress and trauma. Gary, if it's okay, I wanted to move on to ask about your book, Tales from the Madhouse, which was released in 2015. Can you tell us what led you to write the book and what response you had from the medical community? I, I think, broadly speaking, there were, there were two main reasons for, for, for writing the book. I, I think the first was that it was um, an opportunity to, to express some um, degree of frustration um, and discontent with the way things were. Mm. So I think I did. By the time I did leave the service, when I did opt for early retirement in in 2013, I was feeling very frustrated and quite angry about some of the things that were going on. So I'd be dishonest if I didn't say there was a, a cathartic element to 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 writing the book. But the but the main reason really um, was that I I wanted to to make some contribution, no matter how small, to trying to uh, uh, energize us towards some some radical shift just seemed appalling that we were responding to people in distress in the way that we were and um, I just thought there was much better ways we could do it so I wanted to make you know my, my little bit of uh, contribution towards trying to uh, to achieve that so I suppose those were the the, the, the two main reasons for, for writing the book, James. As for the response to it, I haven't had a huge amount of negative response. Um, uh, the, the reviews up to, to, to date have been, on Amazon, have been uh, very positive. Occasionally on social media, and I'm sure you can identify with this as a person who, who's, uh, who's active on, on social media. And obviously, I've, uh, there's been one or two individuals who... who, who who are more wedded to a, a traditional approach, biological approach to to, to mental health, who, who challenge me and accuse me of various things. The usual ones are um, to try and to uh, be a, a bit of a self-publicist and, uh, and you know, seeking fame. Turf Wars is another one. I want to reduce it to. In fact, I got called that about three days ago. Actually, that, that was that was my motivation. Turf Wars. Um, <laughs> 
which which is really odd, really odd because you know I've, I've been quite critical of my own clinical psychology profession quite a lot really as well. Yeah. So uh, so it did seem a bit perverse to go with that. And some of my sign, particularly the American associates that I have on uh, social media, uh, there's been times when they've accused me of being a, a Scientologist which was interesting because the first time I was accused of that, I didn't even know what a Scientologist was. <laughs> I, had to, I, had go, I had to go and look it up. But after saying that, you know, that, that, that criticism has been uh, uh, pretty limited, really. Um, most of the reactions I have received have been, have been uh, very positive. Yeah. Uh, and clearly, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are not quite on the same uh on the same uh, wavelength, who probably just ignore it. I'm sure that happens. Um, hope it goes away. Um, but um, as far as active opposition and, and, and antagonism, I haven't had that much, really. Surprising, though. Thank you, Gary. And, you know, my view from reading the book is that there isn't really that much room for criticism because it's based on so much experience within the psychiatric system. Even in the introductory section, you even say that you would welcome people's challenge to your views and you're quite happy to engage in discussion. I think that's very brave. Oh, thank you. Yeah, one does one best to be, keep an open mind because because uh, discussing this again with a colleague quite recently about in, the, in an area as contested as mental health, you, mm. you've always got to retain the possibility that you might be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, I know I'm, I'm, I can be as opinionated as the as the next person, but um, somewhere in the back of your head, you've always got to retain the possibility that you just might might be wrong. I agree, and what I'd say in my own experience is that the difference between a good psychologist or psychiatrist and a bad one is that the good ones are prepared to admit that they may be wrong and have doubts and the bad ones are those that are absolutely convinced that their way is the only way yeah i'd I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that Mm. the way i see it as well thank you gary and i just wanted to move on now to talk about the current view of the world if that's okay in particular, I was interested in your view of the current use of psychiatric medications, particularly given the fact that the number of antidepressants prescribed has doubled in the last decade in the UK, and no doubt there are similar increases in many parts of the world. Although I'm often critical of the way medications used in the mental health service, I, I do accept that uh, there is a role for medication. I'm not, I'm not totally un- anti-medication by any stretch of the imagination. I suppose, I suppose for me, James, it's about ensuring that the the individual has a, an, an informed choice. And I, and I, I know that's a, a bit of a, a, a well-worn phrase, isn't it? Um, an informed choice. But, but for me, there are, there, are, there are three key elements to ensuring um, that somebody has that uh, uh, informed choice. I, I think the, the three things I think people need to be aware of is, first of all, the, the efficacy of the antidepressants, as I've said, clearly they are of benefit for some people, but as you will know, you know the the, the efficacy when when you look when you look at the the, the studies that have pulled all the all the data together, the efficacy is is is, is quite limited overall. Yeah. Obviously, within that huge group of people, there'll be there'll be a lot of variation. You know, even that study from last month, the um, Jacobson et al. study that was published last month. Yeah. Um, which was this huge uh, um, meta-analysis looking at all the different studies of, of the effectiveness of the SSRIs. You know, their, their conclusion was that the, the, you know, there may be some statistical significance around uh, benefit, mm. so some quite small statistically significant benefit, but, but often that wasn't of any real clinical 
significance. Mm. Again, Bill was there are lots and lots of people within that group and some probably will benefit a lot more than others but, but looking at the picture overall the the efficacy isn't huge let's say you know, yeah. and I think people need to get have a realistic expectation of, of what the what the likely um, degree of efficacy is so that's the first thing I think people should be clued upon is the the, the efficacy data and of course, it's side effects and discontinuation effects, or yeah. the common side effects of taking antidepressants, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, the the, um, the withdrawal effects that may well occur. You've been on them for a long time, yeah. and I think that those discontinuation effects to me are, are something that are quite striking because I can recall back in the 1990s listening to psychiatrists and drug representatives coming round selling their wares to us, at least to my psychiatry colleagues, who were adamant that there were never any withdrawal effects to antidepressants. You know, I remember them saying over and over again, you know, these, these antidepressant drugs aren't like uh, Valium and these terrible benzodiazepines, you know, they, they don't have, they, they can't get addicted to them, they, you know, there's no, there's no withdrawals. And yet we know now, of course, that there is quite a, a strong and pretty unpleasant withdrawal effect of can on them for a length of time and you know involving some pretty unpleasant experiences mm. you know, vomiting weepiness irritability vivid dreams electric shock sensations in limbs and so on stuff that i'm sure you'll be very familiar with so that's what i think people need to be aware of that so efficacy and the side effects and the like you know the likely uh, reactions to withdrawal after long-term use. Just the third thing for an informed consent is, is, is the mode of action. You know, they're trying to get an understanding of how these things actually work. And I'm particularly drawn to Joanne Moncrief, uh, the London psychiatrist, who's talked about the different um, mechanisms of action and, can, and talks about disease-centred. And just to quickly explain that, your listeners, but the, the, you know, the, going to Joanne and Moncrief, that um, disease-centred action is what's what was tended to be sold to people over the last de- couple of decades as the mode of action. It's the, you know, it's the uh, in, you know, reversing the, uh, biochemical imbalances and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. You yeah. know, this idea that, that the drugs act in that way. When Moncrief argues quite persuasively, in my view, that that's not really the way that they, they act. It's a, it's a drug-centered action that actually causes an abnormal brain state. But that abnormal brain state might well be preferable to what the person's experiencing. Mm. So some, you know, I think some of the common examples that's often used is, uh, I don't know, a little bit like if you're feeling socially anxious before meeting new people that you might decide to have a couple of uh, 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 drinks mm. of alcohol, which might well work and you'll, you'll feel calmer and it might, might give you a bit more confidence to, to interact. But, but the alcohol's created an abnormal mental state, not, uh, not, uh, not sort of um, balanced the chemicals within the brain. So, so I, I think that, that kind of distinction is, is, a, is, a, is a really interesting one. And, and I know it's, it's contentious. I, think, you know, I know my psychiatry colleagues, and some of them would argue about that. Um, but, it, but it seems quite a, a useful way of looking at how drugs operate and, and, and why at times they might be 
beneficial. Thank you, Gary. That's really useful. We do need to be cautious and recognise that there may be benefits for people, even if that is just a placebo effect. That's something that we should support, but we should also perhaps try to ensure that drugs are not the first line of treatment turned to in each and every case. Yeah, I think, I think, that's, I think that's right. And if people are given enough information to be able to make a choice, then of course I, I'd, I'd respect that and um, wouldn't try and dissuade them from it. But it's just sad, I think, that over the, the decades, people haven't had that information. And the, the, or the information they have been given has been rather a, a partisan one that's around... You know, these drugs are restoring balance. They are counteracting biochemical imbalances in the brain and restoring harmony. Um, and of course, the, the analogy of diabetes and insulin, isn't it? You know, you're mm. suffering with a, a mental illness, and these drugs will, will 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 cure it by giving you the chemical that you're lacking. You know, it's that it's that kind of uh, dubious kind of men, you know, rationale that I think has been fed to a lot of people over the, the last couple of decades or so and you know it's, it'd be good if we could if we could give them information that would reverse that i agree thank you and you're certainly helping me to do that as part of the podcast it is important to remind people that these myths and stories are just that and not the same as evidence-based medical science I also wanted to ask, Gary, you've said in past articles that I've read that the Western psychiatric approach has failed. What would we need to do to improve treatment for those who struggle with their mental health? That's a, a good question, and it's a big one as well, isn't it? And, um, of course, I'd, I'd, I'd strive for a, a paradigm shift away from illness like any other approaches to to, uh, to human suffering. Um, but what that would involve, I think, would be changes at, at multiple levels within within our communities and our societies, and not just in the in the kind of mental health arena. Because I guess one of the, one of the most contentious things I, I suggest in the book, which I know the NHS is a very cherished organisation, and it's, it's one that I cherish deeply as well for my for my physical ailments but I actually I'm very strongly of the view that we should move away from having the NHS as the as the lead provider for mental health problems mainly because I just think the culture is so illness orientated that it is very difficult for it to you know to to take on board radically different approaches but overall i don't i think i think we need a multi-level approach maybe shift the focus on to trying to promote well-being which is to me is a much broader construct rather than this focus on countering so-called mental illness Mm. whatever 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 that is and and i think a multi-level approach would involve quite a lot of political and economic changes as well to to counter some of the things that we know make a significant contribution to, to mental health difficulties, things like you know, poverty, homelessness, discrimination, inequality, childhood neglect and trauma. I do think we need to kind of um, change the way we allocate resources to try and address those kinds of things much more uh, effectively than we, than we do at the moment. So so in a nutshell, I don't, I, I think, um, a paradigm shift for me would, would get us to a point where it isn't just about and maybe not even mainly about what the service is mm. or mental health problems and that's important but, it, but, it, but, it, but that's that's part of it i think it's about this the change in, in society really and, and, and looking at tackling some of these um, sources of, of human suffering um, and, and, and try and counter those 
too much, I think, would have a, a significant impact. I'd also tend to focus more services on on, on, on trauma as well. I think I think um, not always, but I think often people who are struggling in the here and now have often had traumatic experiences of one sort or uh, another, sometimes multiple traumatic experiences. And I think services for, for tackling those are really important. Mm. And a much more socially focused, less less technological service. Well, I think there is a role, as I've said, for medication somewhere. And I think there is a role for for a kind of formal talking therapies as well. Bedrock you know, needs to be a much more socially focused, less technological service involving things like peer support and um, normalising kind of uh, approaches such as those espoused by the, uh, the Hearing Voices Network. Those kinds of things that are very much uh, led, mm. or at least I've noticed, that was have a central role in in, in in helping other people with with similar problems. So those those range of, of, of things I would I would I would seek for the future. And my only other, my very final point to make, James, in fact, the, the, the other area that I'm very passionate about, I think, does need to change is the Mental Health Act. We do seem to all collude with the Mental Health Act, and and, and and to me, it is a real engine room for a lot of discrimination and a, a lot that's wrong, a lot of stigma, and a, a, lot, a lot of the things that are wrong with our current system. So I, I would like to see, I suppose, a, like a, I call it in the book, a collective scream of disapproval. <laughs> I'd love to see that around the Mental Health Act, because the more I think about it, the more I see it as a fundamentally discriminatory, really, legalised discrimination. And I, and I do feel that, that that needs to be addressed. I know I'm probably getting off topic a little bit there, but I do think there's lots of, there's, there's some good work as well in pockets going on around alternatives yeah. to the Mental Health Act that, that, that uh, would be better. Thank you. That was really clear, and it's not off topic at all, because clearly what's in the Mental Health Act contributes very strongly to the medicalisation of distress and leads to not giving the patient the chance to be invested in their own recovery and taking control away from a patient with compulsory treatment and forcible detention or administration of drugs. Yes, that's right, James. And when you think about the the bottom line criteria for, for coercion, you know, for actual sectioning people, all, all, you, all you need is... For somebody to identify you as having a mental disorder, mm. again, whatever that is, uh, and deemed to be at risk. You know, there's, not, there's nothing in the Mental Health Act that, that automatically ins- you know, insists on you having to look at decision-making capacity or anything like that. If, if, if it's assessed risk and you're deemed to have a mental disorder, you know, one can be incarcerated against your will even when you've not committed a crime. And it, it, to me, that, that seems pretty discriminatory. I know Jackie Dillon talks about mental health being the last great civil rights movement, and I have, I have some sympathy with that. And risk, you know, another one of my, my areas that I feel passionate about, the way mental health and psychiatry approaches risk is, is quite perverse. And uh, professionals spending chunks of their time doing comprehensive risk assessments, which the evidence suggests are at best only slightly better than guesswork. You know, they're not, you know, and, uh, so two very dubious concepts that can result in somebody losing their liberty seems to be seems to me to be a, a fundamental uh, problem with the current system. Yes, that's right. And certainly the power that the Mental Health Act vests in people who we hope have our best interests at heart means that it shouldn't go unchallenged from time to time. Gary, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really glad that we could talk about these issues together. No, it's all right. Thank you. 
I'm so grateful to Dr. Sidley for giving up his time to talk to me for the podcast, and I'm sure you found the discussion fascinating. As a reminder, Gary's book Tales from the Madhouse is available now and well worth your time. It's a cracking read. Feedback. Please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me on feedback at jfmore.co.uk. Finally, if you're struggling with withdrawal yourself and don't know where to turn, there are some excellent resources listed on my website, jfmore.co.uk. Please go and have a look. Please do not increase, decrease or stop your psychoactive prescription medication without the advice and support of a medical or mental health professional. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk Withdrawal. Come back next week for more news and views. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe in iTunes.